We know the news can be relentless, and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there, across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. We're just weeks away from a school year unlike any other in my lifetime. Every student will be part of a living experiment for the ages. We're going to see firsthand what happens when we send our kids back to school during a pandemic. There are lots of opinions on how to do it safely, even as some experts argue we shouldn't be doing it at all, at least until there's a vaccine that's safe and effective. Today on The Dose, we answer the question, how can I send my kids back to school safely for them and for us? My guest is Dr. Nisha Thampi. Hi, my name is Nisha Thampi. I'm the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at CHEO, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in Ottawa. I'm also a Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist and mother of two children who will be going to elementary school in the fall. She also wrote a hand-washing song. It's a cute little ditty that excites young kids to wash their hands. That's the Hindi version, and it's not the only one. The hand-washing song is available in 29 other languages. It's part of Dr. Thampi's passion to keep kids safe. Nisha, welcome to The Dose. Thank you for having me. Before we talk about schools, can you sing us the hand-washing song in English? Sure. Scrub your palms between the fingers, wash the back, wash the back, twirl the tips around, scrub them upside down, thumb attack, thumb attack. Wow, that's good. And you can also sing. Thanks. Did you take voice training? No. <laughs> so you wrote, you wrote that song last year with the help of your daughter before the COVID-19 epidemic? That's right. We wrote the English and French versions. So it's been very gratifying to not only write it then, but also see it rapidly translated into so many different languages in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. And we'll post a link uh, to that song uh, at our website, cbc.ca slash whitecoat. You're not just an infectious diseases specialist. You're also a parent. What are your biggest concerns around sending your own kids to school this fall? So I want to see lower cases in our community. You know, jurisdictions that open school with more cases of COVID in the community did not keep their schools open for long. And that's really because... We have very good evidence to show that children are most likely to get COVID-19 infection in their home environment with an adult household member. And so if adults are bringing the infection home, surely we'll start to see children coming to school with it. And we also need to have a robust isolation, testing, and contact tracing strategy to support the affected students and teachers and minimize the number of children who would be exposed to COVID-19 in the school. What should parents be doing right now in the weeks before school to get their kids ready for so the reopening of schools? there are different strategies that parents can take to prepare for the return to school year. In terms of the 
child or the adolescent, getting them used to uh, the idea of wearing masks for settings where uh, they may not be able to maintain physical distancing. And in some schools uh, or in some jurisdictions, masking will be mandatory. So being able to get used to the fabric and the breathability of the mask and wearing it for prolonged periods of time, that's important to start now. Another strategy for parents is to ensure that they are more thoughtful around activities in the community to minimize the risk of transmission because we know that parents are likely to uh, bring the infection home and that's where children have been picking up their COVID-19 infection in the last few months. So minimizing the community transmission can ensure a safer reopening for, for kids and for teachers. So that's parents. Let's turn to the schools. What do you expect to see changed around the layout and physical environment of schools to help protect students and teachers and other staff from the coronavirus? So I think of infection prevention and control in schools kind of in two different ways. One is the elimination strategy. So you seek to minimize the number of people who are entering the school with COVID-19. And that's, as I mentioned, decreasing the community transmission, screening individuals who are symptomatic out of school, providing remote or virtual learning opportunities, and having a rapid response plan such that kids who or staff who are symptomatic are quickly isolated, tested, and then there's close follow-up with public health for contact tracing. So that's the minimizing number of people entering the school. Once a person has entered the school, we want to minimize the number of people who are exposed to that case in the school. And so this is very similar to what public health has been recommending for the community to decrease opportunities for close contact. So that's, you know, ensuring good ventilation and outdoor education where possible, physical distancing of furniture so that it's we're not relying on individual behaviors to do the right thing, putting up physical barriers where the uh, physical distancing cannot be provided, cohorting to minimize the number of students who would be exposed to a single case. And some people have talked about smaller pods within the cohorts to, again, further minimize the risk of exposure. And then there's also increasing education around personal hygiene at school as well as in the home. And I think schools can lead this piece, and that would be encouraging hand hygiene and respiratory etiquette. A lot of stuff there. Um, I wanted to ask a few questions to drill down a little bit deeper. Um, What kind of screening should the school do before allowing a student or a teacher or another member of the staff to to enter the school that day? We can we can draw from what we've seen in other sectors, like in acute care and long-term care, with syndromic surveillance or screening for for the presence of symptoms. I think that's valuable. We also want to be able to put something in place such that it's not just COVID for COVID nineteen that we're screening, but also for other respiratory or gastrointestinal viruses, because wouldn't it be nice if schools actually were not, um, you know, breeding grounds for outbreaks and uh, other kinds of infections? Do you think that that there's value in taking the temperature of everybody who enters the school each day? I think taking the temperature uh, can be problematic because it's not a very sensitive marker for COVID-19 infection, especially in kids. 
What's the maximum number of students that that should be uh, permitted in a classroom uh, where they're going to be in fairly close proximity? Um, we know that there's some variation on that and uh, from province to province in the back-to-school guidelines that we've been seeing. Now, ideally, we would want to have smaller class cohorts. And we've talked about the number 15 because that, for most standard classrooms, would be equal to keeping a two-meter distance between between the desks. But classrooms don't often function with desks facing the front, facing the teacher. And so, you know, for me, the ideal class cohort is something that that our learning environment experts need to come up with and help give us direction around that because they have a better sense of how the class moves in that environment. I think it's clear that, you know, pre-COVID-19, those class sizes were fairly large and it can be challenging for the educator to ensure that children are maintaining their physical distancing, that they're washing their hands. I mean, it can take many minutes to get elementary age students to wash their hands and there's not often a sink in the classroom. So you may be supervising kids in the bathroom. Um, But in addition to that, it can be hard to get them to keep their masks on to ensure that they're not self-contaminating with inappropriate touching of their masks. So from a logistical perspective, we would do well to advocate for smaller class sizes. Sounds like a lot for an individual teacher to have to monitor through the course of a school day or even if it's half a day. I think that's what we're hearing from teachers, right? I think there's high expectations from the community that the return to school would be a return to the pre-pandemic way of learning. And we all have to be prepared that there are going to be bumps along the way and that everyone is coming into it with good intention. The teachers are passionate about what they do. The parents are thrilled for their children to be stimulated. For myself, I'm not an educator and this pandemic has given me a newfound appreciation for teachers that I already had, but they're they're concerned because they have to return to these pre-pandemic class sizes that were already large and introducing these safety measures is very important but will surely take away from the time to learn and in addition they have to provide online learning opportunities for those children who cannot be in the classroom. One of the things we could also do is is consider or, or develop a system to support teachers more for instance by having extra staff available to wipe down surfaces in class. Is that something you would expect to see? I would hope to see that. I would hope to see additional measures put in place to support teachers to be able to focus on the curriculum. So whether it's additional housekeeping staff, whether it's additional monitors to support children in their hand-washing behaviors or to help ensure that masks are fitted correctly, to help support the medically fragile children and you know, to to be able to nudge children to keep their distance in such a way that still makes children feel like they're in a safe space, that they're not being punished for being close to their classmates, and to have as normalized an experience as possible, recognizing that this is a new normal that we're going to have to live with uh, for a while yet. 
Since you mentioned it, um, should there be additional precautions for medically fragile children? Because I have friends who have medically fragile children, and and you know they have expressed misgivings about bringing their 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 kids back to school, and some of them have already decided that they want to go virtual in terms of their children's education for the foreseeable future. This is a very complex area. Uh, complex because it not only involves. Um, the care of the medically fragile child in the classroom. It involves their their right to an education and their right to socialize with other children in such a way that keeps them safe and ensuring that they have the right supports in place. So we're not just talking about teachers and educational assistants. We're talking about um, therapists who can be with them in the classroom setting and what kind of safety measures should be put in place for the therapists as well as for these children to protect them from their classmates. We know a number of these medically fragile kids may not be able to wear a mask. Are there other measures to protect them from droplet spread from their classmates? Is it a question of having everyone wear masks when they're close together? I think this is where clinicians play an important role in guiding families and in working with schools for an individualized health plan and uh, return to school plan. We'll be right back. We know the news can be relentless and it's hard to keep up. On Your World Tonight, it's our mission to catch you up in less than 30 minutes. When news breaks, our reporters are there across Canada and around the world. We bring you context and analysis and sort out what's real and what's relevant. I'm Susan Bonner. I'm Tom Harrington. I'm Stephanie Skanderis. We host Your World Tonight. New episodes every night, seven days a week. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. This is The Dose. Today, we're answering the question, how can I send my kids back to school safely for them and for us? My guest is Dr. Nisha Thampi. She's the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at CHEO, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And she's also a mom to school-aged children. There's been a lot of talk about holding classes outdoors in tents. What impact would that have on cases and transmission of the virus? Being outdoors seems to be associated with less, with a lower risk of COVID-19 infection transmission. So it sounds like a great idea in the summertime to have classrooms outside in tents. What that looks like in the winter may have to be different, but we wouldn't be the first jurisdiction to have outdoor education in a colder climate. And I think this is where we can share those uh, ideas with the administration and, uh, and work together to, to introduce them as interesting and creative and safe learning opportunities. So we've, we've, we've spoken about students. We've spoken about a little bit about, about, about children who are more medically fragile. Let's turn to teachers and school staff. Are they different? How much do they risk their health by returning to work compared to students who are otherwise well returning to school? So I, I can appreciate teachers' concerns about going back into the classroom setting. I'll also say, though, 
not so different from the acute care sector. You know, we had we had healthcare professionals who were very concerned about patients coming in with COVID-19. Where we saw transmission, however, where we saw healthcare workers getting infection was in the break room. It was during lunch breaks, during snack breaks, when people took off their masks and were uh, sitting in close proximity. And so I want to be careful that we not just focus on the student-teacher interaction, but that we also ensure that there are safety measures in the other areas of the school outside of the learning environment. Um, How young would you say is too young for children to wear a mask? So masks are not recommended for children under the age of two years, as well as uh, kids with developmentally complex conditions who are not able to take on and take off their masks uh, independently. What about teachers? Uh, uh, I know some teachers have said uh, that they wonder how they're going to be able to teach a class with a mask on. It's tough enough trying to order a coffee these days. I think this is a very fair concern uh, that teachers have. And certainly we know that kids learn language through lip reading. And that's, you know, even for kids who are not hard of hearing. So it may be an amplified issue for kids who are hard of hearing. I wish there were recommendations around face shields as a safe alternative. What is the science on face shields as an alternative to wearing masks? There hasn't been as robust evidence uh, for the use of face shields in isolation, like without the use of a mask. There is some evidence that's under peer review that suggests that they may be as effective. But again, it's awaiting peer review. And there are certain jurisdictions that in the U.S. that have gone to recommending face shields universally uh, without face masks for their healthcare workers with uh, no clear evidence of infection transmission. So I remain hopeful, but we have to work with what's recommended by public health at the present time. Students uh, tend to congregate a lot more during lunch and recess. How important is it to regulate contact outside the classroom during the school day? You know, the safest strategy, of course, would be eliminating uh, lunch hours in a congregational setting. So either removing lunch hours altogether and having kids eat at home, that's not practical for kids who are bus who have to take a bus in, who are not walking distance from home. So another approach would be to minimize the number of kids who are eating at the same time so that you can have more physical distancing because of course they're gonna have their masks off when they're taking their meals. So that's what we would call a staggered lunch hour. Barring that, Other strategies that have been undertaken is having plexiglass barriers set up between individuals at a table as an alternative to the two-meter distancing. Recess is a different experience. That's typically outdoors. And we know that with air circulation and good ventilation that there's a much lower risk of getting COVID-19 outdoors. And so I think the regulation there would be much less critical than in an indoor environment, closed space with people's masks off and the potential to be sitting less than two meters apart. Here's a question from a listener that I want to put to you. Uh, Sarah Plumpton from Victoria writes, I'm a high school teacher who is very worried about teens transmitting COVID to staff. 
in our neighborhood, almost everyone is social distancing, physical distancing really well, except groups of teens. Has anyone studied how teens are responding to the pandemic? Will teens rebel? You know, will they be self-disciplined enough to stop gathering uh, so that they and I as a teacher may be safe? Uh, that email is from Sarah Plumpton in Victoria, B.C. I've actually been fairly impressed by the teenagers I've worked with in the hospital and met outside the hospital in these past few months. I find that the majority clearly don't want to be part of the problem and have developed creative strategies themselves to maintain physical distancing, um, virtual opportunities to hang out, mask making and even food delivery initiatives for their community. So I think it's really important here to have teenagers involved in coming to a solution of how to minimize the risk of transmission in the school settings. And I think we would do well to listen to them because they clearly have a sense of responsibility, the majority I'm speaking, and even the ones who are, who may be quote unquote acting out, maybe it's a response to how we have discussed the pandemic with them and our own actions. And so, you know, recognizing that they can still be influenced by their adult role models, I think we would do well to give them a space to be able to share their ideas, to uh, bring forward solutions that that are with their educators who know them best in the classroom environment. Once uh, schools reopen, should teachers and students isolate themselves from grandparents and other relatives at risk uh, should they uh, become infected with COVID-19? I think that's a really hard question because it may work one way for a family that has their grandparent living in a retirement home or in a different city, very different for multi-generational homes where there may be multiple individuals in the household and, a, and an inability to isolate. Uh, and so it's not just the, the student who can bring the infection home, right? It's all the adults who can bring the infection home. And so taking that collective responsibility to be mindful about their activities outside the home and to put in safety measures like physical distancing and masking and hand washing when they're outside and, you know, cough etiquette when they're in the home as well. This question comes from Peter Geary in Winnipeg, who writes, when my kids started daycare, they brought home all sorts of new viruses and I was ill for the first few months. Uh, is something similar going to happen? Should we expect to be sick for a few months before our bodies adjust to the fact that our kids are back at school? I think this is going to be a very different school year. And we've seen that a little bit with Australia, where they've seen lower rates of influenza, which typically predict our winter season. And I think that we can give some credit to the infection prevention and control strategies that we'll be putting in place in schools. So it would not only prevent um, the spread of COVID-19, but also other respiratory viruses that are spread through hands, through secretions, through contaminated surfaces. I'd like to think that it'll be one of our better respiratory viral seasons. It might actually have the opposite effect to what Peter Geary is saying. Making us much more conscious of infection control means that we're going to be less likely to pass germs from one to one another. Absolutely. And again, we're going to be aiming to screen out the kids who have symptoms, right? So now you don't have kids coming in with COVID-19, with influenza, with other respiratory viruses. So I think 
you know, we'll actually see f lower rates of kids being sick in general and adults being sick at home with them. I'm going to ask a final question. From everything that you've said, you're in favor of schools opening if there are adequate precautions put in place. You see the importance of, of, of in-person education, uh, albeit under safe circumstances. What would happen after the schools reopen that would make you think twice or even make you think about closing schools down? So I'd be, I'd be concerned about school transmission if we were seeing an uptick in our community transmission rates. But I would say that a priority should be keeping schools open. And so if we start to see more cases appear outside of schools, we should be prepared to walk back from stage three and ensure that other higher risk social settings are closed to minimize the risk of students and teachers acquiring the infection from the community and from adult household members and bringing the infection to school. Dr. Nisha Thampi, thanks for speaking with us and thank you for singing the hand-washing song. Thank you for having me. Dr. Nisha Thampi is the Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. The reopening of schools during the pandemic is one of, if not the most, controversial of decisions. It doesn't help that the rules vary depending on where you live in Canada, and we won't know if we got it right until well into the school year. Given all that uncertainty, here are some smart guidelines that should be in place. First and foremost, schools should reopen only when new cases of COVID-19 are sharply down and have stayed down for several weeks. In parts of the U.S., schools were reopened before that happened, and new cases surged, forcing officials to close schools again. Schools must screen students, teachers, and support staff for symptoms of COVID-19 every day when they arrive. Inside the school, it's all about physical distancing. Students must be at least two meters apart, which likely means no more than 15 kids per classroom. Children aged 10 and older must wear a mask at all times, except when they're eating. In some provinces, mandatory mask wearing is by grade and not by age, so check the rules in the province in which you live. If a student has a valid reason for not wearing a mask, we need to respect that, but they should wear a face shield. Although not mandatory, younger children should be encouraged to wear a mask. Students should also be encouraged to wash their hands frequently, and surfaces in the classroom and other parts of the school need to be wiped frequently as well. Students should spend their days at school in as small a bubble or cohort as possible. That reduces the risk of getting COVID-19 and makes it easier for authorities to trace contacts should someone in your child's cohort test positive. Most experts agree that it's important to get kids back to in-person classes at school. But it must be done safely and carefully if we want to prevent the return of large-scale outbreaks. Should that happen, don't be surprised if authorities need to close schools again. That's our show this week. If you have a question or comment about reopening schools or anything else, tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBC Whitecoat. You can also email us. Our address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose and our sister program, White Coat Black Art, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Jeff Goods and me. Our digital writer is Brandy Wikely. Fabiola Carletti does our social media. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman.
Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.